Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, we are live from the beautiful lobby of the study in downtown New Haven uh, here at one o'clock in the afternoon. If you're listening to me live at one o'clock and you're in New Haven and you want to come and even visit with us, and, and I mean, you can't actually actively visit with us right now, but there's very comfortable chairs available. You can sit down and watch what we're doing, as some people are already doing. It is the 10th anniversary of the study, and that's why we decided to come down and help them celebrate. We've done lots of shows. We've done more shows here at the study than we've done anywhere else, and maybe more shows here at the study than we have done everywhere else combined. So anyway, congratulations and stuff to uh, the study. Now, we're going to do the news uh, today, and we've got a great panel. Uh, we need a great panel on a, in a situation like this. So uh, to my immediate uh, left as I sit here is Mark Oppenheimer. How many times do I have to say unorthodox today? Because in, in the past, there's been kind of a quota. It's, it's, it's the writer in my contract. Just, just once is fine. <laughs> no, <laughs> Twice no, now, because you just said be. it. All right, so, so he is the editor at large for Tablet Magazine, but also host of the podcast Unorthodox. Um, which I have appeared on and may appear on again as their token Gentile. Uh, and, but it's a great podcast. You should listen to it. And it's called Unorthodox. Unorthodox. Okay. <laughs> Paid in full. Uh, also, Mark writes for everybody, and he's the hardest working guy in journalism, as far as I can tell. Uh, except you're on paternity leave now? Yes, I'm not the hardest working guy no. uh, with a six-week-old son. So, no. Right. I got my dog spayed last night. That's you my had a son. You're no, you are no longer a slipper man. I am no longer a, a chocolatero, as they say <laughs> in Spanish. A man with only daughters <laughs> from the word for slipper, uh, weirdly. Uh, no, we have, I have a son now. Oh, so your life is divided into two chunks. Yep. Uh, all right, so uh, sitting next to Mark is Lucy Gelman. She is the editor of the Arts Paper, also a very hardworking journalist, I might add, and the host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink, which is spelled S-Y-N-C. I don't have to say anything, like say it a certain way, like work it out. Or, no. Do you no, want me to say it a certain way? Work it out. Yeah. No. No, there's no finger snapping, there's no, no beatboxing no, I have to do, have nothing like that. No, we have a little jingle, but you don't have to sing it. All right, and also with us, uh, Sean Murray, a stand-up comedian and writer and host of the Fantasy Film Ball podcast. Um, and we, we're hoping to do, we love having Sean on today, and we're, I can't, we, we can't announce it yet, right? We're working on some. We're working on a comedy showcase uh, that would involve our we're show such a tease. and Sean. <laughs> like we can't. We can't yeah. announce this and thing. It could be we'll... also that Louis C.K. is going to drop by. The thing that we're doing with Sean is not clear yet. Um, and obviously, we couldn't announce that. All right. Um, and while I mention the pun, con- make sure I mention the pun contest. You want me to do it right now? You don't think it slows things down? We're also having, speaking of comedy, or perhaps not speaking of comedy, depending on how you feel about puns, a pun contest uh, on Wednesday, October 24th. Our show is going to be about puns. Uh, the extremely funny Alexandra Petri from the Washington Post is going to join us, uh, as is Joe Berkowitz, author of Away With Words. That's away. It's a pun. Never mind. Um, and, but anyway, if you want to um, enter and try to win some kind of prize, the always coveted WNPR Colin McEnroe show, some kind of prize, which is just a lot of crap that we put in an envelope and mail to you, basically. Um, then you can tweet us at WNPR Colin with your pun. You can add a pun to our Facebook post. Uh, you can call Betsy Kaplan's cell phone, which I, I'll give out the number in just a second. Uh, or you can actually call the show that day. Um, and during the live show and do a pun and I don't we haven't really structured the, pod, the 
No, I think the Facebook post explains the, co the contest, right? Yeah. We do require a urine sample. Um, <laughs> not, not to test for drugs, we just like getting them. Um, all right, so speaking of that kind of thing, um, it's time to talk about Louis C.K. Louis C.K. is back in the clubs, um, and he in particular is uh, uh, appearing at the Comedy Cellar, uh, which is this storied, Sean can explain it better, this storied comedy venue. It actually was featured in the intro to the old Louis show uh, and featured lots of other places. Uh, the uh, uh, owner, Noam Dorman, it has now gone to the trouble of trying to explain in a number of different environments why after Louis C.K.'s famous scandal, which I suppose we can uh, uh, kick over the traces of in just a second, uh, why he would have um, Louis in here, uh, in, in his club. I think we, we know on at least six occasions so far, always as an unannounced um, performer, always as kind of a surprise. Uh, Wolfie, maybe we could just begin by playing this clip of Noam Dorman, the owner of the Comedy Cellar, explaining uh, some of his thinking to our very good friend, Mike Pesca. The, the one question it all happened that I didn't have a good answer for is what about these people who are upset by this and they're ambushed and they have no choice in a matter. And I had to decide how to handle that. So this became the natural way to handle it, which is to make sure that everybody knows it's up to you. We're not dragging you in here. I, I don't want anybody to hold me accountable for this stuff. It's, a, it's not a safe space. It's a comedy club. You may not approve. Close friends of mine don't approve. But if you come, that's the way it is. Yeah. Was there ever a thought of either with Louie or anyone else in who had been given stage time and either broke the law or transgressed in some way? Have you ever given serious thought to because of this person's morality or actions in the world, he's not going to have the platform that I provide? Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, I think about it. it's it's um I mean before this happened people say what about if Cosby walks in, you know? And I've tried at all to avoid going down that road as much as I can because I know that quickly I'm going to end up a hypocrite. I really don't like to substitute my judgment for the audience's judgment. I I think that's one of the reasons the club works. works. All right, so um, I think most people know, and I want to explain this in such a way that we don't alarm people who are checking into the study uh, right now, but Louis C.K. <laughs> about 15 years ago had a series of occasions where he apparently, without obtaining the consent of uh, the people he wanted to watch him, or in one case listen to him, uh, took it upon himself to pleasure uh, himself for, as I say, women who had not really given any type of consent. Um, that's more or less what we know about this story, I think. So I, I've never done this before on the news, but I'm going to tell you the order of speakers. We're going to start with Sean, then we're going to go to Oppie, and then we're going to Lucy. Okay. Mainly because I sort of, I think I understand how the ping pong ball is going <laughs> to ping and pong. So Sean, get us started on this. I mean, just as a comedian and as a human being, assuming those things don't overlap, what's your take on all this? Uh, <clears throat> I think uh, it's interesting that Noam was saying that he, he wants to leave it up to the audience how, how they, like if they make, the, for them to make the judgment, but it's also Louis drop it in, so how do they, they make the judgment, they don't, they don't get to prepare themselves for, I have, I have a friend who actually works at the cellar, and he said, he thinks it makes a better structure for a drop in would be, have the normal show, and then afterwards say, from this point on, someone's going to drop in. And if you want to stay for that, you can stay for that. Because then you can prepare yourself to know that something's going to change as opposed to just having, like, Louis drop. Because people can't prepare themselves to know. Like, you don't know how you're going to feel about that. And I, I think 
in, in my perspective, I don't know. I think Louis just has to come to terms with the fact that he doesn't get to be the Louis he was before. Like, you right. know, he, 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 he used to be able to just drop in and people would be excited. Some people are not going to be excited and you have to be okay with that. You're not going to be Louis C.K. from a year ago because things have changed in the public perception of you. Let me just ask you one more question. Um, I mean, do you think Louis should be performing at all at this particular moment in his life? Or, I mean, how do you feel about him just performing? I think, I think he's entitled to perform. I don't think, but like uh, in the interview on Slate, uh, he, <clears throat> they brought up Paul Tompkins, another comedian who said, Louis could easily rent out a theater and have people come to him. He doesn't have to go to the club. So the fact that, I think it's well within the rights of any club owner to say, you don't get to perform at my club, and that's that. Because like, something is like, but with him running out of space or him bringing people to him, that's up to the audience to say mm -hmm. whether or not they're gonna come. But I think any club owner is allowed to say, yeah, you don't get to perform here anymore because we don't want to associate ourselves with you. I think that's very right. fair. But I'd be presumably also, any club owner, including Gnome, can say, yeah, you can perform here. This is my place. I'll decide who's here and you can be here. Yeah, I mean, that, first of all, everyone should go listen to that interview on Mike Pesca's podcast, The Gist. It's really, really interesting. Yes, really good interview. Get into all the different questions. And, and Noam Dorman's really thoughtful and articulate on, on the different competing questions of free speech uh, versus you know, safe spaces, and, and, or not versus, but and, and, and all of those things. I mean, I, you know, I come at this from a few different places, right? Like having been a newspaper editor, um, you know, I used to edit the New Haven Advocate, and um, I would publish all sorts of points of views, including by people who had criminal records, including by people who, would, who had, you know, if, uh, I'm someone who believes, and this comes out of, you know, my background on the left, I mean, having had grandparents who were communists and, and lived through a time when their friends were blacklisted, having a father work for the labor movement. Essentially, the left is about job preservation more than any, it's about the right to, not, not the right to work in the right wing Orwellian or, anti-union sense, but it's about, that they use the word, but it's about um, workplace security. I mean, there's the, the idea of denying people jobs or places to work is, um, is ultimately a right-wing and fascist tactic. I mean, it's the first laws that the Nazis pass against the Jews, is you don't get to work, you can't be in these trades. Now, that's not to say that everyone gets to work everywhere at any time, right? There's a reason why Harvey Weinstein should not get to do his business anymore. There's a mm -hmm. reason, I mean, there are good reasons in terms of security of fellow workers, in terms of people feeling safe, in terms of the dignity of everyone around them. Um, at the same time, uh, there's, there's also, I understand why a club owner would say, if people come here and they can do the job, I'm gonna hire them. I mean, my friend Corey Robin, who teaches political science at CUNY, I mean, he's been very articulate on the question of uh, why people's behavior outside of a given workplace shouldn't affect their um, employment status, including neo-Nazis, who, by the way, I've interviewed and given platforms to myself. So I come at it of a, a sort of workplace justice point of view of saying I understand where Jordan's coming from. I was never a particularly big Louis C.K. fan, so I actually don't have a huge, it's not like I miss Louis C.K. Mm -hmm. or I need him back, but I think that I understand why a comedy owner is going to err on the side that, that, that he chose to err on. So Lucy, I, uh, there's a lot of places you can go and I'm sure you know which one you're going to do. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm, I'm not okay with this. Yeah. Um, just categorically, I'm not okay with this, Mark. I hear you. Um, but that said, and, and yes, there is. So one thing that we didn't talk about was during the interview, um, Noam said, you know, people can get up and leave. Mm -hmm. They can get up and leave. And as someone who has walked out of shows, yes, there is the choice that you have to get up and leave. I think what was uh, more of a problem for me is, and, and also it's interesting, so, um, so Noam was also on The Daily, and I think uh, Mike... Is it Barbaro? Mm -hmm. Actually did a, a, a poor job on The Daily, and, and it's a show that I like. But, um, but I, I think that there's a difference between having 
this person who was able to get away with a situation in which there was not consent because he was in a, a certain position of power um, to give him a, another platform and then have him not really apologize or admit wrong? Well, first of all, I have to do something. Yeah. Lucy, why do you feel I didn't do a good job? I've been working on a Michael Barbaro impersonation. I just wanted to <laughs> workshop it here at the study. I'd like to order a pizza to go. Um, well, I mean, I don't know. It, it, the, the, we all listened to this uh, conversation that Mike Pesca had on The Gist with Noam. And one thing he brings up is Bill Clinton. You know, Bill Clinton's yeah. about to go and perform. Bill Clinton is credibly accused of rape, credibly accused, I think, of exposing his, himself to Paula Jones at a time when he was actually her supervisor in a government for which she worked. And, and you can get up and walk out of a theater where Louis C.K. or Bill Clinton is performing, although what we were really were facing recently was the possibility, we can't get up and walk away from mm. America, where right. he, he might have been back in the White House, married to the president, attending state funerals, making policy pronouncements, which we know he would have done. And so, so what about that? I'm, I'm not sure I got the question. Well, I, I, guess, I guess I feel like comedian, and, uh, and there's no disrespect uh, intended to comedians, but like <laughs> comedians, hurt. I I'm expect... Hurt. I expect uh, the comedians to be a little bit out of control. Like, school bus driver, I would, like, hold to a higher standard. Like, I, you know, I want to make sure the school bus driver, you know, doesn't okay, have yeah, a whole yeah. lot of problems. I, you know, and I so I don't, it's like we don't really have any sort of set of standards here. We make one set of rules for Bill Clinton and one set of rules for Louis C.K. And, like, none of this gets adjudicated in any clear way, I don't think. Well, first of all, I mean, this is a, entirely another episode, but I am not thrilled about the Bill Clinton speaking tour, but we can mm. talk about okay. that off the air. Um, <laughs> The, I mean, the other thing is, I think we're at this moment with the Me Too movement where there are examples. Sean and I were talking off the air about Aziz Ansari, who actually performed in New Haven a couple weeks ago. And that's a situation where I actually think there's a gray area and people took it too far. So there were folks who showed up to protest. That's their right as well. And then uh, Aziz performed two sold-out shows. I, I feel like with this, um, to have this person perform is just to condone really violent acts and to ignore the pain that has been caused to these women. Um, and, and so for me, I'm just not, on sort of a, a visceral level, I'm not okay with it. And I think to Mark's point, um, I, I just like intellectually, I'm not ready to go there maybe. So Sean- we're, we're, we're in, we're Ready to go where? To, to your kind of categorical, um, you know, I think you're looking at it from a very objective point of view. And as a journalist, I should also be able to do that, and yeah. I'm not yet. So later in the show today, Sean, we're going to be talking about the movie First Man, which focuses a lot on Neil Armstrong, who turns out to be the kind of person, you know, who's never done anything bad in his life and really never said anything bad in his life. And, you know, and he is, from all appearances, kind of a boring person. Um, and I wouldn't be interested in seeing his comedy set because I don't think he probably has anything. I mean, he's gone now. But I mean, at no, at no point did I want to see, you know, Neil Armstrong's Def Jam comedy set. You don't um, see but that sort of brings up the question, who, who's going to do interesting stuff? And it seems to me the people who are going to do interesting stuff often are the people who are battling demons. I mean, Louis C.K., all through his comedy career, talked about all this kind of stuff. So uh, I don't know. Is, is it now that he just needs to talk about it in this new way that reflects that in order to get some legitimacy? Well, first, I think there's a ton of great comedians out there. I don't think, like, I love Louis. I was a big, huge Louis fan. But the way Louis handled this has changed my perception of him. But I also think there was enough Louis material that I'm fine if he never does another stand-up again. Like, it, there's, it's, there's no, like, 
dearth of material that you can uh, find on Louis. But to your uh, to your second point, I don't remember what you said. I don't know either. No. Uh, um, <laughs> no. Well, so one of the questions is. Uh, okay, well, he can perform, but he's got to deal with this. He's got to incorporate everything that he's been through, the stuff that he stands accused of, oh, all yeah, that yeah. stuff. He's got to, if he doesn't do that while he's doing these sets, then there's something really illegitimate intellectually about Well, I'm fascinated that he hasn't because, like you said, uh, a large part of what made Louis interesting as a comedian was that he would address this stuff in his life and then like this is the one time where this is the biggest thing that probably will ever happen to him and he's like you have nothing to say about this like mm. he like and like even like the, the he people talk about the bit he used to have where like you know women uh, men are the biggest threat to women in the world yeah he, like they, they played the clip on the gist where uh tell alexander say well he's walking the walk you know it's like it's like <laughs> this is the one like you had all these bits about being a defender of women and then you don't you don't see the irony of you not being a defender of women, like by actively, like I don't know. It's just it's very, it's, it's like I don't know. It's very tone deaf. I feel like he doesn't understand what, what the effect it's him not speaking on it is having. It's interesting to me because, um, you know, in an ideal world we would have sort of obvious sort of rules and guidelines and sort of and procedures. You always the, the problem with a lot of the things that have come up now is that they're not technically criminal or prosecutable at this point. So we're, we're grasping for new ways to deal with them. What's interesting is we especially don't know how to deal when the people who've done these things are rich and celebrated, right? Because actually I bet that most of the people in this room and probably everyone on this panel would say that if someone who's poor and had committed the kind of act that a poor person does and comes out of prison and goes looking for work, or even doesn't serve time, but admits in a job interview, yeah, I, you, 10 years ago, I used to do this, and it's a bad thing, and I don't anymore, and I've cleaned up my act. We all think that person should get a job. In fact, we think it's noble to get that person a job. Can I say something to that, though? Yeah. If you were a lawyer, right, you got accused of a crime, and you went to jail, and you came out, you wanted to be a lawyer again, you probably don't get to be a lawyer again. Like, I don't think the problem is that, right. I don't, it's not that well, I don't you, want Louis to work. Mayor of Bridgeport, yes. Right. Yeah. But, uh. But no, Sean, I totally agree. Or and Toronto. That, that totally um, agree. And it makes my point, which is as you sort of move up the, the scale of privilege, people actually are less sure how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Like they all of a sudden they're saying, well, actually, maybe Louis doesn't get to do comedy and maybe the lawyer gets disbarred. And what's interesting is we all have, and as we should, a deep fund of compassion for people who have been through a really hard time and have had entanglements with, with you know, with the penal system. And then we get out and we correctly, I will say as a progressive, I won't speak for anyone else, want them employed. All right, yeah, I don't, so I, don't I have two questions for Lucy. No interrupting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we had a big conversation about interrupting before. Um, so my fir the first question is, is there any, I'm always surprised that nobody's interested in why Louis C.K. might have done something like this in the first place. You know, in other words, this, to my, what he's accused of, what he apparently has done, I mean, he basically said the stories are true. It, it seems to be so connected to shame, you know, as opposed to any kind of normal sexual interaction that people might have. You know, I mean, it seems to me he's got some kind of really weird problem. This, no, he did it because he could. But, like, right? who, who wants to? Who wants to who doesn't Louis? have some kind of gigantic problem? Yeah, I mean, I just think it's... I, it, yeah, no, no, okay. But I feel like when we get into that that whole conversation of like, oh, they must have had some problem, they must have had some underlying issue, well, that may be true, Colin. We're not totally getting at the fact... Like, he did that originally because he could, because he had power, because he knew that women wouldn't speak up. I mean, it's interesting. The last time I was on your show, it was during... Uh, Kavanaugh, right after right. the the Dr. Ford um, testimony, and again, what we saw after that was all of these women saying, "This is why I didn't report then, and why I'm not going to report now." And and this is the Louis C.K. problem. All right. So my second question for you is, 
is there anything about a comedy club that's different, you know, from anywhere else? Uh, so I, I'm asking you, and you kind of, with your arts critic, I mean, in other words, we go into comedy clubs from time to time to be shocked, mm. you know, and, and to be challenged. And so, I mean, think of what it was like to hear Lenny Bruce, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s, Lenny Bruce would come in and he would, you know, can I, can I, will I get in trouble if I tell this? Like, he would stand at the edge of the stage, he'd say, I want to do something, it's really never been done before, I don't know how it's going to go over, it's a little bit different. Um, what I really want to do, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to piss on you. Uh, and the audience would just gasp and, you know, and then, I mean, then that, I mean, think about that in the late 1950s, early 60s, saying something like that. Mm. But, but a comedy club is a place that you go, as opposed to an FCC-regulated radio station, yeah. which I'll follow. But anyway, where you go to be challenged and shocked to a certain degree. They all want to talk about this, but you get to go because you have the floor and there's no interrupting. Oh, I... I I think, uh, yine, uh, you know, yes and no to a certain degree. Um, sure, you go, you want to be shocked. Does that mean that you want to see someone walk onto the stage who is a sexual predator? Maybe not so much. I mean, the other thing is, like, uh, shock value, but to what degree? So yeah. I got in a lot of trouble in New Haven because I took a big uh, critical artistic or arts critic dump on a Tig Notaro show where there was a local opener and people said, you can't be mean about local openers. Well, this local opener made a joke about Sandy Hook and then he made another joke about Sandy Hook. And all of a sudden I wasn't okay with that. And I think in the same way, mm -hmm. um, just as, as a woman who is triggered by this, yes, I know that I could go into a comedy club and walk out whenever I want, um, but I'm not okay with someone walking onto the stage not acknowledging that, uh, that he's been swept up in this Me Too movement and accused of some vile uh, and really disrespectful acts um, and, and just going on and doing his thing after, you know, complaining that he's lost a lot of money in between. All right, I have to look at the producers right now. Can I let them keep talking about this? Do we need to switch to Big Bird? What do we need to do? We'd only get three minutes of Big Bird. Th three minutes? <laughs> we would only get three minutes of Big Bird. For, for Big Bird? <laughs> Do you want to talk about Big Bird? We should keep talking about. I mean, well, let's keep talking about this because yeah, you guys have stuff no, to say. I'll, I'll, I'll be fast. I was actually going to, um, in a sense, say, make the same point, less articulately that. By the way, Big said, Bird has is, not been swept up would, in the Me Too movement. No, I mean, I was going to say, but <laughs> but I would I would say that interestingly, like the, yes. quest, yes. the yes. question yes. seemed not seemed a little bit askew because you're talking about being challenged by the material, and I actually right. love being challenged by material. Yeah. And what. I think Lucy's rightly pointing out is different there is this guy actually nobody was complaining about it's not it's not his material that got, it's it's mm -hmm. his offstage behavior it's and 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 the sense that then there's a kind of hexer and okay and imprimatur being put on the offstage behavior so again I'm not saying mm -hmm. where I come down on that but I I don't think anyone interestingly no one's going after him for his material right 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 okay Sean yeah I was gonna like, say pretty much the exact same thing it's not a it's not a First Amendment thing it's a it's a behavior thing and also I think. Someone made a point online, I wish I could remember who it was, but that what Louis did is kind of a workplace uh, issue because he did it to other comedians. So mm -hmm. other, other women, other comedians in that club are affected by his behavior. P women might not want to work with him. Um, there's the risk that he would do it to other women. Like it's, a, it's, it's very involved in mm -hmm. the type of job he, right. it's not, you know, it's not, those two things aren't separate. Him being a comedian and him being a sexual uh, Committing sex was misconduct, to say the least, is they're not separate. You know what I mean? So I, I don't. All right. No, I, I hear you. I, we should probably stop it there. 
but we don't have time for Big Bird. Big Bird's fine, by the way. It's I love Big you, Bird's Big Bird. Not in any trouble uh, that we know of, anyway. Uh, it could be a lot of things got swept under the nest. Who knows? Um, but um, but probably not. Okay, we're going to take a break here. We, we've all been to see the movie First Man, which is about Neil Armstrong. I already kind of teased that. Uh, so we'll do that right after we come back. We're live here at the study here. You can make it sound like we're actually here, which we actually are. Turns out he's dead. And that's why I'm singing. Why, what is wrong with the world today? What's wrong with the world today? Why, what is wrong with the world today? Okay, we're live. We're back at the study in uh, downtown New Haven. If you're here, if you're walking around New Haven here in the afternoon and somehow or other... You hear this, and you can just come and sit down and see our, our wonderful panel here. Uh, and our wonderful panel is Lucy Gelman, editor of the Arts Paper and host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink, S-Y-N-C. Sean Murray, a stand-up comedian and writer and host of the Fantasy Film Ball podcast. Uh, and uh, also watch this space for another project that we are trying to do with Sean uh, very soon. Uh, Mark Oppenheimer is the editor-at-large for Tablet Magazine, a father of many children, uh, and host of uh, the po uh, podcast Unorthodox which is a very unorthodox podcast that <laughs> unorthodox people would probably enjoy. That's probably a lot of times to say it, right? <laughs> Here's your 20. <laughs> That's right. Um, I've been on unorthodox. All right, so uh, we all went to the movies, uh, and uh, through good planning, we all went to the same movie. It's First Man. Um, most of you know it's directed by young Damien Chazelle. Uh, who's, it's his third movie after Whiplash and La La Land. This is about the, um, the moon mission, basically. It's seen very much through the eyes of one person, that one person being Neil Armstrong, of course. He's played by Ryan Gosling. Uh, let's hear a little bit from the movie before we get started. This is a press conference where you'll hear Deke Slayton, who's uh, at that point moved from transition from astronaut to kind of mission commander. Uh, he is played by Coach Taylor. Uh, from uh, Friday Night Lights. I think Kyle Chandler is just not even entitled to have a name anymore. He's just Coach Taylor to me. Uh, Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong, as I said. You heard Corey Stoll as Buzz Aldrin. So let's hear that. Brian. Neil, if it does turn out, you'll go down in history. What kind of thoughts do you have about that when the thought hits you? Uh, gosh, suppose that flight successful? We're planning on that flight being successful. Uh, I, I just meant how you feel about being a part of history. I think I can shed some light here. It's a responsibility, but it's exciting to be the first. Even my wife is excited. She keeps slipping jewelry into my PPK. You're planning on taking some of her jewelry to the moon, Buzz? Sure. What, what fella wouldn't want to give his wife bragging rights? Neil, will you take anything? Uh, if I had a choice, I'd take more fuel. So that's uh, Neil Armstrong either telling a little joke or being Neil Armstrong. It's hard to tell at times. Um, so um, I should say that we have a very a formal ban in this show on astronauts. Astronauts are kind of sneaking <laughs> onto the show uh, by our talking about this movie. But uh, if any of you are astronauts, you should just get up and leave right now. It's kind of like Louis C.K. You know, when I want to be surprised by an astronaut. So um, let's go this way. I think it'll work because we're evenly split on this movie. Yeah. So Abby, you go first. Right. So. Um, I, first of all, I like Ryan Gosling. Um, I've liked him ever are. since that movie, what was it called, where he played the... the Lars Jew and the Real Girl. No, the Jewish neo-Nazi, oh. his early one, where he plays him. Remember that one? Yeah. It was a true story from the early 60s about a guy with Jewish ancestry who became one of the leading neo-Nazis in the country. Anyway, the Notebook. Whole, what? The Notebook. 
No, the notebook, right? <laughs> right. Um, right. So, um, and I've always been a Ryan Gosling fan, and this was packed with other good actors as well. And um, I just thought, you know, I came at this, as, it felt like Hollywood blockbuster to me. Maybe mm -hmm. it's because I see Astronaut and I think Apollo 11, and I think it's going to be that kind of... I also think Arrival, which isn't really about astronauts, but is about, you know interstellar communication. And to me, these movies are good for one thing only, um, which is just blowing my mind. And this one, this one kind of did. I mean, the, the shots of seeing, coming out of the atmosphere and seeing space were very beautiful to me. The, the, the claustrophobic shots of, of the astronauts in the cockpit. Do you call it a cockpit when it's a... Uh, I think know, you call it a PPK. Yeah, whatever, yeah, you would. So I just thought it was kind of mind-blowing. It held my attention. Um, yeah, and, and I also found it to be, and this seems to be one of Chazelle's things, at least whiplash in this. It was kind of a character study. There's a way in which it's actually a fairly small movie, which is that it's really interested in the psychology and mentality of a very complex guy, complex bordering on boring, uh, Neil Armstrong, who's entirely introverted and entirely sort of inward-looking. And I thought it actually made him fairly compelling, which is, which is not a mean feat. Right. It's called The Believer, by the way. That, Thank you, that The Believer. transmitted over here. Thank All you. right, Lucy, you're up next. Oh, uh, wasn't crazy about this movie, so I've seen uh, Chazelle's uh, Whiplash and then La La Land, which I really, really did not like, and then uh, this piece, and I, I will say, as a moviegoer, I'm not super into movies about space and space travel. If Mercy Quay is listening, I'm sure she's very upset to hear that right now. <laughs> I was thinking about her a lot, uh, actually, as I was watching the movie because she loves space. But um, that said, I think all of us can, can and have agreed that it, is, it, it does boggle my mind, and I think the human mind, that this was achievable 50 years ago. And so I left the, the movie with certainly a sense of wonder in that, and kind of a question of, like, was the moon landing worth it? Um, but as a movie itself, this just didn't have me. Right. I mean, it really is kind of amazing... The, the equipment that you're seeing, like if somebody tried to give you a toaster that had those kinds of knobs and dials, you'd say, well, no, I want a new toaster. This doesn't look like a very good toaster. They're going to the moon with this equipment. Yeah, but it's, anyway, Sean, it's go crazy. ahead. Uh, I, thought it was, I thought it was fascinating just because he, Neil was the only person in the entire film where like every time there was a setback in the mission to the moon, it was a directly affected him. You know what I mean? Like there was this scene where... Um, uh, one of the uh, one of the astronauts uh, died. Elliot, who's a friend of Neil's, and uh, Buzz makes a comment like, "Oh, like, oh, he he was basically says he's a bad bad pilot or whatever." And he's like, "You don't know that." And it's like because to Buzz Aldrin, he's the guy who just came into this mission very late. He has no relationship with Elliot, but to Neil, like that was a very close friend of his. So every time, like to to to, to Deke Slayton, to whoever the congressman, whenever like there was a setback in the mission, it's like, oh, this is taxpayer dollars. This is is this a waste of um, is this a waste of like resources? But to Neil, that's why I think it was fascinating. To Neil, it was like this is a waste of my friends. People have lost their lives to get to this mission. So it's it's past the point of him worrying about is this worth going to the moon? It's like I'm going to get to the moon because my friends died trying to get to the moon. Like it's beyond. I think that was a fascinating thing to narrow that focus onto this guy. He's not the most interesting guy of all time, but I think he carried a lot of loss and he got to the moon. He was on the moon, dude. That's awesome. <laughs> I can tell that you want to say something. Oh, I, I will say, you know, Gosling, I think, nails the character. Like, there were, there were things that I did not think were bad about the movie. I think mm -hmm. he nails the character. And I do think, um, responding, Sean, to, to your point, 
that there is a, this is someone who has a background in flight, in, in being a pilot, in engineering. And so he experiences a great deal of personal loss, including his young daughter when she's, what, I think, three, two or three years old in the early 1960s. And the way that he tries to articulate that is through the facts and data with which he's comfortable at work. Right. Yeah, I, th I thought it was, in many ways, a character study of someone who's already not great with emotions, right? Who, mm -hmm. who prefers to process things computationally. And, um, and then, clearly there's an argument being made in the movie, and this is not giving much away, you discover in the first seven minutes of the movie, that as you say, he loses this daughter, and then turns even more inward. Mm -hmm. And to me, but I also think the movie then wants to say, and that's what made him the best person to go to the moon, because he was such a nice man, right? Because he, his emotion, he, was, he kept it cool, he was not emotional. He was, there are these moments where, in, in some of the training flights, where they're about, it seems like every training flight, they're about to die, yeah. and then he says, hold on, and he scratches some things on some graph paper, and then he saves the mission. Yeah. And I think part of the, the, the claim of the film seems to be it takes someone who is not emotional and who maybe has suffered the kind of loss that makes them even more inward looking to be able to be that cool under pressure. It made me wonder, like, could an excitable, voluble, more scattered person like me no. No. And no. the answer is no. Yeah, I'm going to say no right up You're front. You're not astronaut I'm material. not astronaut material. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I just do, I do want to say about this that I think once Chazelle settled on the movie he wanted to make, he made that movie. You know, he made, mm. once he decided he wanted to tell it this way, he wanted to focus on Armstrong, essentially to the exclusion of everybody else. Um, and, and that he wanted to really have it be a, a sense of what it might have been like to be in that cockpit or whatever we're going to call it, and everything's shaking and altimeters are spinning. And, you know, I mean, and he did a great job. Um, I personally would not have made that movie or signed up to go see that movie. And ultimately, it seems to me that because this guy is so uncommunicative and so emotionally limited and so repressed, I want to know what his relationship with Buzz Aldrin is like. You know, I really want to see. And like poor Michael Collins, I don't even think his last name gets moved. He went all the way to the moon. You know? And he's like, I don't think he even ever say his last name in this movie. It's very much about one guy. But I also want to get your reactions on if there's another person that we get to know, it's Janet, the, the wife of Neil Armstrong, played by Claire Foy. We are living in Claire Foy's world right now. We're just visiting. <laughs> Claire, she's going to be Elizabeth Santander. Mm -hmm. uh, and, or that's Santander. It's, she's not the bank, I don't think. She's Santander <laughs> in the, uh, the next... Uh, girl with the spider tattoo. Girl right? with the spider tattoo. The reboot. I think she's in the neo-Nazi uh, remake of The Notebook. So, mm -hmm. yeah, like everything. <laughs> um, Everything. So uh, let's first of all hear, she plays, uh, she does play Janet Armstrong. Uh, we're going to hear uh, one of her expressions of emotion, which she does a little bit more than her husband. <laughs> this is when the communication from the, the mission has been shut off. She has a little box that she's been able to listen to, and they shut it off because they think the mission's in trouble. Here's what that sounds like. Jan, the ship is stable. They're going to be all right. He's okay, Jan. I need you to go home. Fine. Turn the box back on. I'll see what now, I can do. Now, turn the box back on. Now. Well, there's security protocol. Well, does. I don't give a damn. I've got a dozen cameras on my front lawn, Deke. Do you want me telling them what's going on? Jen, you have to trust us. We've got this under control. No, you don't. All these protocols and procedures to make it seem like you have it under control. But you're a bunch of boys making models out of balsa wood. You don't have anything under control. 
Uh, we should say on that clip, one of the other voices is the actor who plays the tragic figure, the astronaut, uh, Ed White, who died in the launching pad fire. Um, the actor who plays Ed White is the same actor who plays Ted Kennedy in the movie Chappaquiddick. Chappaquiddick, of course, unfolded on the weekend of the moon landing, so it's just kind of a weird thing. But I want to talk a little bit about... There's a conspiracy uh, theory in there somewhere. Yeah, somewhere There's in there. Somewhere yeah. in there. Um, so... I, want to, I, I do think Foy is a remarkable actor, and she can do so much with her eyes, those huge pupils, you know, and, and with her face, and, and she doesn't get to say that much, but to, I don't know, for, for me, Sean, this was the performance that I locked in on. I thought, maybe I could kind of experience this through the person who's kind of suffering through all the tension. I don't know, what did you make of it? I thought she was great. I, th I think she is great. Like you said, it's her world. We're living in it. But uh, I think... What's fascinating about her character and her relationship with Neil is that, like, I think one of the things you don't think about enough when there are great achievements in humanity, whether it's like winning a Super Bowl or whether it's going to the moon, it's like the personal effect of dedicate personal the effect on your personal life that going to achieve something great has. Like, you know what I mean? So, like, every single relationship he had, Neil has in the movie is completely strained. Even with the other astronauts, he has moments where like other astronauts are trying to connect with him and he's like I'm not I can't go there with you like I'm not going to talk about my dead daughter mm -hmm. I just want to talk about the mission and it's like you know there's a the very great scene uh, right before he leaves for the the final mission to the moon where um she's like he hasn't said anything to his kids yet about how like he might not come back he's a he, like this mission might not be a success and she forces him to sit down at the dinner table and say like your dad might not come back and it's like I think that's fascinating because like you don't think about that. You don't think about you want you want there to be a Neil Armstrong in the world, but you also you want there to be kids who have a dad who who's caring. And like those two things often don't can't exist at the same time. You know, what he mean? didn't really come up with much at that moment, did he? <laughs> I mean, he did the best he could. <laughs> one of his, like, sons, hey, I'm one of his sons got a hug. Yeah, one of his two sons got a farewell. And the other one got hug. a firm right. handshake, and I like that. Yeah, they got the firm handshake. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, Lucy, this is a very male-centric movie. I mean, it is. Janet is our... We That's should say... True. Well, it is First Man. In, Come on. Hmm? Come on. First Man. Or, well, First Man. True. But although the, the Russians like had... In 1963, the Russians had a female pilot in space orbiting the Earth 48 times in 1963, so five years before we went to the moon, they had a woman. We didn't get Sally Ride until, you know, way, way, way later. Yeah. So I, I don't know, but I, does Foy, what does Foy do for you? Yeah, well, one interesting thing that I only thought about after, the, after seeing this and after the fact is I can't in some ways not see her as Queen Elizabeth because I have watched The Crown. Right. But I think there's significant overlap there. So Claire Foy is an actress who can say a lot. Colin, you mentioned it with those big brown eyes. Mm. Um, they're incredibly expressive. And with her face, she's also an actress who does a lot with silence, almost as much as she does with words. Mm -hmm. And I think she is used to playing this character who sort of has a steel spine that she didn't really want to have. Uh, it's a role that she's been forced into. Who has incredible moral fortitude. Um, and in, in this, she, in many ways... Uh, worked. I, I wasn't totally sold, but I thought, especially in the moments where we see what she's doing with silence, and then there's one moment where she knows that Neil is going to go to the moon. She's standing alone in a room, and we see her, we, we kind of approach her, and it's her back, and her son runs up to her, and she says, well, daddy's going to the moon, and he says, cool, can I go outside to play? And it's, it's like funny and emotional and striking all at once in that moment. And so I think she does that very well. Yeah. yeah. I would say that the, um, first of all, that is true. It is, I, I was 
thinking about how male a movie it was, and then I thought that actually ends up being one of its strengths because one of the portraits it gives in the way that it's a small movie, that it actually ends up not being, not reading like Armageddon or Apollo 11 or whatever, is that not only is it about this introvert, but it's about an introvert among other strong silent types. Like it gives you this, like, I want art to take me to all these places that I have no relationship to, and one of them mm -hmm. would be like military slash astronaut mm -hmm. culture, where basically the capital is how stoic can you be? Yeah. And that was really, really, really interesting. And I did think, I thought that Claire Foy was great, but actually I really enjoyed the, the nuances of this weird, repressed, highly stoic, masculine culture that you don't see portrayed a lot in film, partly because it's non-expressive and the dialogue's terrible, right. right? But they got some really good, you know, Corey Stahl, I think he was slightly miscast, but he's a compelling actor. Ethan Embry of the greatest teen flick ever, Can't Hardly Wait, making another attempt at a career comeback. I mean, <laughs> there were, who played um, the, the first friend who died? The, um, uh, oh, Elliot. yeah. Yeah, who played Elliot? I can't remember. He was also name. someone who used to have more of a career and is now bringing... I just think the casting went really wide and far. Mm. And then actually, these guys who don't talk a lot because that's their thing, they're strong silent types, actually ended up having kind of individual personae. And that I was like the casting in the right stuff. And they all talked a lot more. And a lot of those actors were people we had never heard of or barely seen at all before we saw right. the right stuff. So uh, I don't know. That's more, more my kind of movie. But I'm a little, I'm a little on the talky side. I think. Yeah, yeah. No, me, right. I mean, me too. So, all right. So I think we have to stop there so we have time for endorsements. Yes, probably. Yes. I don't know. I'm looking over there for guidance. I think that might be true. Okay, so we're here at the study, the beautiful study. Uh, we'll just do another little applause. Their 10th anniversary. Check in, check in right now, and we'll be back. You know how sometimes you're on a plane and the stranger sitting next to you really wants to talk and you don't want to talk? That's kind of how I picture Armstrong and Aldrin on the moon flight. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf, with help from Betsy Kaplan, Panina Beattie, and the Betsy Kaplan party van. The part of Bill Curry was played by Lisa Nowak. Google her. On Monday, we're back with a look at the weekend's news on the scramble. And now... Back to Colin. We also have to thank Scott Breedy, who also came down in the Vitsy Kaplan party van, which is not as nice a party van as we've had on some occasions. They gave us kind of the crummy party van. But, um, but thanks very much to everybody who came down here and helped, up and helped out and helped us get set up. Also, the study just makes this super easy. And it's like sitting here in the lobby. Joyce Maynard just walked through, said hello. Then there's people. There's a wedding going on. There's a wedding party. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's fun. It's fun to be here. All right. So um, let's uh, do some endorsements. Let's recommend some things. Uh, Sean. Why don't we start off with you, Sean Murray? Uh, Brick. There's a uh, Ryan Johnson's uh, debut film. Oh, I love Brick. Yeah, it's on. Uh, it's about now streaming on Netflix, and it's just. Uh, it's kind of a neo noir set in a high school, and it's, it's great. It's amazing. It's uh, Joseph, Joseph Gordon Levitt. Yeah. Um, other people. Megan Good's in it. She's one of the only times she was cast well. Uh, it's a great movie. It's it's a really interesting. Uh, I 100% co-endorse that with yes. you. Yes. Like I, I, when I saw it, when it came out in the movie theater and I sat there and I turned to my son and I said, this is the perfect movie for me. It's mm. perfect. It's a, a perfect evocation of noir, but they're all high school students. Uh, and Lucas Haas is in it. As More a, Lucas a, Haas. Lucas, he's a drug kingpin. Uh, uh, all right, so Lucy, you go next. Oh, okay. Uh, so the rapper No Name just dropped an album called Room 25. Who's the, who's the rapper? No Name. Okay. One word. Got, no Name. It. One word. So instead of No Name, No Name. Um, <laughs> 
and it's it's really good. People should listen to it. Also, since we didn't talk about it, there is a video. Since we didn't talk about Sesame Street, which is wonderful, there is a video of Davi is Diggs it? singing Rubber Ducky, and he makes up a Rubber Ducky rap. It is the thing that you need in the world right now. If you don't know who Davi Diggs is, he's the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson in Hamil- in the original Broadway recording of Hamilton. He's wonderful, and everyone should go listen. It oh, will I put wanna... a smile on your so face. So how do we Google that? How, how will we find it? Just, uh, I, I mean, maybe look up either Davi Diggs, Rubber Ducky, or what Thomas Jefferson was really doing at Monticello. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's good. So, um, and so you can even talk slow or say more because we've actually got extra time. I didn't manage the clock that well. Maybe we'll come back to a couple of other things, but what have you got? Uh, uh, sure. Um, well, Sid and I are very, very excited that the CBS comedy Life in Pieces is almost uh, back, uh, or season three is, is starting up on various streaming services. I hear that CBS actually still has a broadcast signal, though I don't know anyone who, who gets their TV that way. <laughs> and this is a show, it's sort of like parenthood, but, but in a half hour comedy with a lot of slapsticky lines. And so it's, um, if you sort of Neil Simon rewrote the, the great uh, Craig T. Nelson show, uh, Parenthood. And it's basically three generations of, of a family, and, um, and they all happen to coincidentally live near each other in absurdly large houses and not work a lot so that they have time to hang out and make wisecracks at each other. But it gets something very right about family life, and mm. it's very, very funny and also kind of compassionate and generous spirited and silly. And um, it doesn't get, you know, people hear a lot about the good place. There are a lot of network comedies now that seem to have some buzz, like the good place. We're under a lot of pressure to do an episode of The Nose about the good place. Really? Yeah, a lot I of pressure. Seen yet. A lot of pressure. Um, the big Vinny? wigs. Hmm? Say so the big wigs got their gun to your head. Yeah, yeah the big right. The big wigs. Uh, do you watch the Good Place? Who watches the Good Place? Do you watch? watch do you watch it? Yeah. So you could be on the show that we do. Yes. Yeah. All right. I will um, be. Why are you under a lot of pressure for it? Just to take a like our lives are. In, there's a fan of the Good Place who's in oh, our newsroom. In, who's in your Who's newsroom. a little unhinged about it. So her, ni- her main, main name might sound a little bit like Barman Haskoff, and she's like <laughs> kind oh. of wacky on yeah. this subject. Um, so, but Life in Pieces is uh, is another great network comedy that I think is just terrific. The other thing I want to say is that my um, friend Andy swears to me that Norseman. Has anyone here seen that? Which is no. on some streaming service, and basically <laughs> it's set in ninth century. Um, you know, Viking culture, and it's uh, Monty, he said it's Monty Python meets The Office on ninth century Viking culture. So he's wow. absolutely made me promise. Actually, to Sean play. and I pitched that to Amazon, pitched that? That, yeah. that exact show. Well, they already had it in development, yeah, so it was too that. late. You know, good ideas are get snapped up really fast. Um, so, so there was that, and. Um, you know, th- I'm going to start that tonight. So, two, you know, I've been watching a lot of TV. Oh, so, you're actually endorsing something you were about to watch. I'm, I'm passing that's a, that's on. Amazing. I'm endorsing Life in Pieces, but <laughs> I'm passing on Andy Boone's endorsement of Norseman. All right. So, uh, but there are, there's two things where we feel some pressure to do a nose about. One of them is that one, the, the Good Place. And then the other one is Doctor Who, but we don't know how to do the Doctor Who one because, you know, you have to be watching Doctor Who for 50 years or something. Oh, you need you to know, go deep. Like, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Don't know, we don't know how to do that on the nose. But if anybody has any solutions well, or ideas. Well, then the mail you get from, from Who fans who right. accuse you of screwing stuff up, I mean, they'll destroy you on right. Twitter. But communicate with us on Facebook about this uh, anyway, if you have any ideas about how we could do, or maybe both of those things in one show. All right. So I am a horror movie movie wussy and we're working on a show about horror that's going to involve me watching a lot of horror and that's like not a great thing uh, from my point of view anyway but I did watch A Quiet Place the, A Quiet Place? The Quiet, a Quiet Place A Quiet Place I really liked A Quiet Place and I didn't think it was all that scary Wait, What is this? 
It's uh, John Krasinski uh, and his wife, Emily Blunt, and they are in a future, but not very much future, a horrorscape where, where we have been invaded by terrible beings who will just kill us all and rip us to shreds and devour us, except that they, um, uh, they can't see anything. So if you're really, really quiet, they don't kill you. Uh, and what's incorporated into this uh, is that they have, uh, well, three children's, <laughs> well, mostly they have three children, and one of them is deaf, uh, which, and so they, they all know sign language, which has enabled them to survive, but also put the, that particular child in some special situations. And it's beautiful looking, you know, and, and it's, it's not, I mean, it's scary without being, you know, totally terrifying. It's, it's one of the most lovely looking <laughs> movies where people get ripped to pieces that I've ever seen in my life. I think maybe if Halloween were like a nicer looking movie or something, I'd, I'd probably feel a little bit better about it. And then this is sort of a mixed endorsement. How much time do we have? It's also directed by uh, John Krasinski. So um, right now, TheaterWorks in Hartford is doing uh, The River. The River is a play by Jez Butterworth, who was acclaimed for the play Jerusalem, which Mark Rylance incarnated both in London and on Broadway. This is the play he did afterwards, in kind of a sad period in his life. Now he's got this uh, play, The Ferryman, which has just moved from, uh, from London to Broadway, which is also like a big ticket and a lot of excitement. This is sort of, you know, it's kind of his kind of minor key play, and it brings up some interesting questions about uh, men and women. It's the kind of play I would expect to uh, have a difficult conversation with Lucy Gelman with after she had seen this play. Uh, but so I don't know. I mean, go, you know, go, with, go with another person of the opposite sex and, and then have a, a big it's argument. A it's a theater works it's in Hartford. Theater works, yeah. uh, and I mean, you will have an argument about it, but it might be an interesting argument. So I want to thank everybody who's here today, especially Lucy Gelman, editor of the Arts Paper and host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink, Sean Murray, stand up comic and writer and host of the Fantasy Film Ball podcast. And watch this space. We have an exciting project we're working on it with Sean. We just can't quite announce it yet, <laughs> I don't such think. such a tease. Yeah. And Mark Oppenheimer, who's basically running around town taking care of a lot of children, but also editor-in-large of Tablet Magazine and host of the podcast, Unorthodox. Get your Unorthodox uh, t-shirts and other we have merchandise. Those. You have them? We do. T-shirts. Yeah. Can you just buy them? Coffee like on the website? Absolutely. Yeah. Bit.ly slash Unortho shirts. You've got merch. We got merch. You've got merch. All right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming out today. Thanks to everybody here at the study for helping out. Give yourself a big hand, panel, audience, and my my great crew, Betsy Kaplan, Jonathan McVan, Scott Breedy, and Panina Beatty. It's hard to do with Breedy. I see you on the radio. Oh, yeah. I see you on the radio. Oh, Lord. Down on Colin McEnroe. That's right. I see you on the radio. Mm. Let me tell you, baby. I'll meet you down on a silent. Across from St. Francis, past the conservatory, up the street from the seminary.